Hello and welcome to Travels Through Time, the podcast made in partnership with Unseen Histories. It's Violet here. This week we are braving the thrills and terrors of the Ottoman court under its greatest sultan. There was no shortage of extraordinary rulers in the 16th century. Ivan the Terrible towered over Russia. England had its own Gloriana, Elizabeth I. Charles V governed the vast Holy Roman Empire, while in India the Emperor Akbar transformed Mughal culture but every one of these mighty potentates cowered in the shadow of the man who ruled the Ottoman Empire between 1520 and 1566, Suleiman the Magnificent, Lord of Lords, Master of the Celestial Conjunction and territories that stretched from Baghdad to Bulgaria. Feared and admired in equal measure, Suleiman was the sultan who got closest to the golden apple, the fabled pot of gold at the end of the Islamic rainbow, representing unlimited wealth and power, and ultimately the defeat of Christian forces and the domination of the heart of Europe. He conquered the island of Rhodes and much of Hungary, only facing defeat at the gates of Vienna in 1529. In his compelling new book, The Lion House, the award-winning writer and expert on the Islamic world, Christopher de Belague, takes us deep inside the Ottoman corridors of power in this dramatic period of their history. Christopher took me on this travel through time the other day. Welcome to Travel Through Time, Christopher de Belague. Thank you very much. So today we're going to be talking about your new book, The Lion House, The Coming of a King, which is all about uh, Suleiman the Magnificent, who was the most powerful ruler in the 16th century and definitely the most exciting. But before we talk about him specifically, I wanted to ask you about your relationship with the Islamic world, because you've written several award-winning books about various different aspects of it. And you've also worked for many years as a journalist. And I know you've lived there um, for long periods of time. So can you just Tell us a bit about your your relationship um, with the Islamic world. Uh, well, I, um, as you say, I started um, as a journalist, so um, I went where the work was. Quite by chance, I ended up pretty early on uh, moving from India, where I started to Turkey and becoming the economist correspondent there in my 20s. And uh, it was a tremendously exciting time to be in Turkey. Turkey was was not very well known. Um, and there was quite a lot going on. And so my interest in the in the Islamic world was filtered through Turkey and the Turkish present. Um, and I was concerned with the contemporary and what was happening um, there and then. And uh, gradually over time, I, 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 my, my interest grew deeper and I started to delve into um, the Turkish past. Then I, then I moved to Iran and I became the economist correspondent in Iran. And I also married an Iranian lady and that kind of formalized my uh, my relationship with the Islamic world. And uh, then came the so-called war on terror. 
and being in Iran, which was a kind of haven of um, stability amid a rather turbulent sea, I was able to kind of um, branch out uh, and do a lot of reporting from Afghanistan and Iraq and other places during, a, during this um, very interesting, tragic and turbulent time. I think it's kind of pretty pretty self-evident that if you spend enough time doing doing the present you start to think about the context and to my mind history is context it's about um explaining the context for what for what we know is happening or think is happening now and so i started to write books that um that delved into the past um i did a an oral history in eastern turkey which was about um the kurds and the armenians and the turks contesting the same very small parcel of land that was quite a difficult book to write because i was inserting myself into people's lives people who didn't necessarily want me to insert them into the insert to for me to be inserted into their lives um but that 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 was rebel land um i also wrote a book about um iran after the revolution and another book about um british involvement in iran particularly the uh our involvement in the coup of 1953 when british and american agents toppled a popular Iranian prime minister who had dared to nationalize the oil industry um and then my final my my most re- recent book was a was a sort of more sort of self-consciously magisterial kind of overview called the Islamic Enlightenment and that is essentially uh taking the idea that um the Islamic world has been resistant to new ideas and challenging it um through quite in-depth looks at the modernization process in Egypt and Turkey and Iran and the the characters who and the events that shaped that uh, modernization process over the 19th and and 20th century um and i w- what i wanted to ask you about how it is for you writing about a part of the world that is you know your adopted home and as you say you're you're married to an iranian how do you find that what, what how do you find doing the research are people receptive and glad that you're doing it and then how are your books received in that part of the world so what how, can you just talk a bit about that i think i think it's difficult to generalize because i think each book has its own um has its own identity and its own character the book i wrote about mohammad mossadegh the 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 prime minister who was toppled in iran in 1953 has been a has been a massive success in iran um it has been translated um by various different people there's no copyright there so everyone just picks it up and translates it and brings it out um and it's been enormously successful i i would say that um there's no hard and fast rule i mean researching rebel land in eastern turkey was very difficult um not everyone wanted me to be there um and uh, the turkish state certainly didn't want me being there and delving into elements of the armenian genocide that they would prefer not to be um not to be uh, revealed um it so it's kind of depends on on the book um but i write primarily i'm in fact i i write in english for a for a western audience and so my audience is primarily um in the west and when these books are translated um then sometimes they do very well and sometimes they're just completely ignored yeah and do you think um so when you, i suppose i i want to know what your sort of aim is what do you hope will be the result of your books are you um hoping to contribute to mutual understanding because in my experience um the problems between the you know so-called um western 
Christian world and the Islamic world that we've had in recent decades, so much of it seems to be um, as a result of a lack of understanding and a lack of knowledge of, of each other. And I, I just wonder what, what you think about that. Yeah, I've been living back in, in the UK since um, 2007 and I and I haven't stopped um, trying to achieve something along the lines that you've you've just you've just described there's an enormous kind of ignorance and, and mistrust on both sides but since I'm addressing a western audience I'm trying to kind of chip away at that western ignorance and I do I do that in lots of different ways I do it in articles and reviews and I do it in my books um, I mean, my most recent article was about an extraordinary uh, initiative to um, launch a series of exhibitions in France about um, Islamic art and a, a really remarkable kind of simultaneous exhibition in 18 different um, galleries across France that bring different elements of Islamic civilization to the attention of people who haven't really given proper thought to that um, civilization and what it actually means and whose conception of Islamic civilization is formed by an idea of an unsmiling, stern, fanatical, rather unpleasant civilization and doesn't really make room for the, the playfulness and the joy and the light that also inheres within that civilization. So I've just been writing a, a, a quite a fulsome and praise praise some review of that. Um, so I do that kind of thing all the time. I think the Lion House um, is a little bit different. Suleiman the Magnificent is not is not well known. He's he, people have heard of him, um, but he hasn't been written about um, for a very long time. It's, it's about time that someone looked at him um, afresh and also told the story. I think the story is so wonderful um, that I think in this book I'm I'm trying to tell a story. Well, and also, I mean, what you really take from um, from your book is how connected the the all these worlds were and all these different parts of Europe and different parts of the Islamic empire. There were, there were enormous connections, weren't there, back then? The, the connections are, of course, extraordinary. And um, they've been brought out by others in the past. Uh, but what I think I, I tried to do in The Lion House, which has quite a narrow scope in terms of time, it's just about the first years of, of Suleiman's um, period of power, is to um, what I think perhaps comes across is the extraordinary interpenetration um, that existed then between people of different kinds and different origins who were all um, in some way made welcome by the Ottoman court and were exploited and used by the Ottoman court in order to, to achieve, um, you know, really quite global aims. Um, and I think this is a, it, well, this is a great contrast um, between um, what could be described as the more insular approach of the Western Christian monarchies of the time. Um, and I suppose the most glaring example of that would be the Habsburg monarchy, um, which was very informed by um, attempts to rebuff Lutherism, um, attempts to standardise um, uh, Catholic practice, uh, and also heavily informed by um, the expulsion of um, the Jewish population of uh, of Iberia, and also um, the forced conversion and expulsion of um, of many Muslims after the reconquest of Iberia in fourteen ninety two. Yes, and I think that's something certainly that's um, 
in my research that I've found is that the the Muslim uh, rulers were often much, much more tolerant and much more interested in people of other faiths than the Christians. And it's sort of it's quite difficult to feel proud of coming from the part of the world that we come from when you look at those periods of history. Can you um, can you just explain also why did you call it the Lion House? Uh, the Lion House, um, I was originally going to call it the Golden Apple, which is the mythical kind of pot of gold at the end of the Islamic rainbow. Um, the Golden Apple being a kind of symbol of fathomless wealth, um, military power and defeat of the Christians that, uh, that, um, that is the promise awaiting every Muslim invader that would try and get to the heart of Europe. Um, but in the end, the book turned out to be much more to do with the machinations um, within the Ottoman court, or at least as much to do with that, and the interplay between um, four extraordinary characters um, who I deal with at great length and who I try and get to know and get the reader to know. Um, and that Ottoman court um, inhabits the site of the former New Rome or Byzantium, um, and it's full of detritus from the Byzantine past. One relic is the Church of St. John, which is on the Hippodrome. And the Church of St. John has been um, converted into a kind of imperial menagerie. So every exotic beast um, and dangerous animal that arrives or is captured or is kept there for the Sultan's pleasure is uh, held by um, a, a kind of caste of Moorish keepers um, and they keep these animals um, in the lion house as it is known and there are indeed lions and there are elephants and there are lots of others and the people of Istanbul or Constantinople uh, I think both words are, are, are valid and should be almost used together because of this hybrid identity um, but both the people of the town are used to the to the screams and howls and and roars and barks that emit that, that come out of this lion house and it's a it's a place of of tremendous foreboding um and also exoticism um one of the characters in the book is ibrahim pasha who um started off a slave on the coast of albania um was captured by pirates uh sold in uh ottoman asia minor and was um, purchased by a wealthy widow who gave him a really good education. And he came into the um, sight line of the then crown prince, and they were almost exactly the same age, and they became um, very close friends. They had an intensely close uh, relationship that then carried on when Suleiman became um, sultan. And he brings Ibrahim along with him. And he says to the powers that be, um, who have, whom he inherits from his father, the pashas and the and the ministers and the admirals, um, you've got me, but you've also got Ibrahim. And they don't like Ibrahim um, because he's a newcomer and he exerts some kind of strange power over their new over their new master. And Ibrahim turns out to be one of the most remarkable um, statesmen and political figures of the 16th century. Um, from that beginning on a beach in, in Albania where he's um, scooped up by pirates. Um, and he um, eventually um, gets very powerful, very confident, and starts to think that he can boss the sultan, his master, around. 
And when speaking to um, Habsburg diplomats, he uses the analogy of the lion and the lion keeper. And he says, the lion is, of course, immensely strong, um, potentially fatal. But the lion keeper has a stick and he has meat and he can toss meat to the lion and he can use the stick to make the lion cringe. Um, the sultan is the lion and I am the lion keeper. And did the sultan hear about this analogy? The sultan came to hear uh, about Ibrahim's attitude towards him. I think he also came to feel that um, it was time to be divested of this excessively powerful grand vizier. Um, I mean, at the end, the 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 you know even a matter of a kind of an administrative shuffle. The 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 sultan, who is lord of lords, who is master of the celestial conjunction, whose list of titles extends from you know encompasses half the world, he is unable to to bring about a simple transfer of personnel without asking permission from his grand vizier. Um, and there there start to be a lot of whispers about Ibrahim, whether he really converted, whether he's a secret Christian, whether he has designs on the throne. And eventually in 1536, and this is the final scene of the book, so if you're interested in suspense, then don't listen to this. these next words. What eventually happens is that the Sultan turns against his Grand Vizier with quite nasty results. So there's parallels with um, Thomas Cromwell and Henry VIII there. There are, certain, there are certainly parallels that you can draw with any setup where a king or a monarch has a group of courtiers um, around him or her. Yeah. Um, before we uh, travel back to your chosen year, I wanted to ask you one question about the way that you write history, because it is extremely vivid and alive and in some ways almost conversational. You use the present tense a lot. It really adds to the immediacy. And uh, I've seen it was described as eyewitness history. And I just wanted you to just elaborate a bit on that. I came to this book with the idea of writing a conventional history. It would demonstrate various things about the Ottoman kind of diversity. And, but then lockdown happened and I was denied that kind of um, hinterland that a historian enjoys, which is to get together with other historians to bounce ideas off them. So, lo lo so what lockdown did for me was it kind of denied me the opportunity to get out and about, to, to bounce ideas off other people, to run my eye down the shelves of libraries and bookshops and to get background and other further reading to essentially contextualize what I was going to write about and put it in a, a much wider scheme. Um, and that scheme would both be temporal. It would allow me to say from our 21st century perspective, this seems like that. And we would say this and then to, to kind of discuss the way that we look at history and to put all of these events into kind of context that is a very conventional way of writing history in the way that I've always written it. But instead, I found myself in a in a small room with a whole load of primary sources and so I started to make notes from the primary sources, intending to bulk them out with all the things that I've just described and put in all this other context. But I found myself concentrating ever more intensely on the primary sources and the people that they described. And I, and I found myself sort of transposed. I was almost undergoing some kind of transfer of, of attention so that I lived 
much more closely their experiences. And I concentrate by concentrating on the primary sources and not looking at what subsequent historians have said, not looking at um, the ways, the different ways that one can read history, but simply concentrating what I was on the events and the people I was describing. I found that to be a, a, a kind of thrilling and intense experience. I was intending to change all those notes that I'd written in the present tense to the past, but um, it didn't seem necessary at the end. And in fact, it seemed that the present tense was actually a, a good thing because, it, 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 as you say, it's the, it's the tense of immediacy. And that is the effect that I ended up wanting to put across, not, not the effect of a magisterial historian um, telling people how to think about these things or suggesting ways of thinking about these things, almost as history without the historian. Well, I think it's wonderful. It's really, really original and brilliant way of writing history. Um, I think now we should uh, get in our time machine and I'm going to ask you which year, Christopher, would you like to travel back to today? Well, I'm going to travel back to the, the Islamic year 941, which straddles the Gregorian year or the Christian years 1534 and 1535. This is towards the end of the period described in the Lion House. Suleiman is um, very much established as the Ottoman Sultan. He's had several fantastically successful um, military campaigns. He's taken a lot of new territory for the Ottoman Empire. In some ways, this is the climax. Um, this year is the climax of the first kind of period of his rule. Um, and after this, he will become a more mature and a more um, authoritative ruler. He's still finding his way. But this, this climax is expressed in two or three ways that um, have led to my choice of scenes. The first scene is in the autumn of 1534, um, and it's a scene of a of a well-built, um, very handsome, very authoritative man bent on his knees in a tent in Transylvania um, outside a walled city called Medjesh. And the man is bent on his knees pleading for his life. And outside the tent are uh, an army shouting for his death, saying, kill the Turk, kill the Turk. And he can hardly hear himself think, let alone speak. And he's trying to threaten and cajole um, the Transylvanian leader in whose hands he has fallen, saying, I'm a representative of the Sultan. Um, the Sultan, you will incur the Sultan's displeasure if you kill me. I can give you lots of money, bribery, threats, everything to try and save his life. Now, this man is also, he's, he's covered in dust. He's emaciated. Uh, he's suffering from a form of malaria called Corton Fever, which comes in waves of four days. He's suffered a siege of about eight weeks at this town, Medjesh, and he's run out of powder. His men, have, many of them, have deserted him, and he's fallen into the hands of the Transylvanians. Now, who is this man, and why is he so important? His name is Alviza Griti. He's a Venetian, and he is the son of the Venetian Doge. He is also the number three man in the Ottoman Empire, the richest private citizen in the Ottoman Empire, a supplier of gems to the Sultan, a supplier of saltpeter to the um, to the Venetians, a supplier of tin and other metals to the Ottoman war machine, grain, um, uh, purebred Arab horses, Parmesan cheese, Muscatel wine, you name it. He's got a finger. All the good things. All the good things. He, he was, why is he not working for his dad? Well, the reason is that he was born out of wedlock 
And as an illegitimate child, he is barred entry to any of the senior positions in Venice. And being an ambitious man, he decides to make his way in Constantinople, which is where he was born in any case, his father having been a, uh, a merchant there. And he speaks fluent Turkish. He speaks Greek. His mother was um, probably a Greek concubine. He speaks very good French. Um, he's, a, he's a linguist. And that Constantinople, Istanbul at the time is a, is a place, of, is a real babel uh, of languages. So he fits in very well there. He's starting to make his way as a merchant and to make serious money. When two things happen in 1523, the first is that his father is elected Doge. And so he is suddenly the son of the Doge or the Beolu. And for anyone who knows Istanbul, you might be uh, familiar with a part of Pera, the European quarter, called Beolu. And that means the son of the Lord. And it is named after Alvizagriti because that is where his palace was. So he's, he lives on. He lives on. The son of the Lord lives on. The second thing that happens in 1523 is that Ibrahim Pasha, who we talked about earlier, becomes Grand Vizier. And Ibrahim Pasha is himself isolated at the top of the uh, political system with only his his friend, the Sultan, protecting him from all these hostile forces, the other Pashas. And he needs an ally. And Alvizagriti is the ideal ally. He's rich. He's a Christian, so he can never aspire to take his place. And he's fantastically well connected because he has a direct line to the Doge. And through all of those connections, he has a direct line to all the princes and potentates of Europe. Alvise uh, is, like Ibrahim, animated by power and wealth. In a way, he goes even further than Ibrahim. He becomes not only the, the richest private citizen in the Ottoman Empire, but also aspires to um, uh, control diplomacy. And so anything, any deal that's done, any campaign that's launched, uh, any negotiation that takes place all happens through Alvizagriti. And he, if you're arriving in Istanbul and you want um, to strike some kind of deal with the, with the Sultan, the first person you go and see is Alvizagriti. So he uses that leverage that he has um, in all sorts of ways. That isn't enough for him. He wants real power. And the way he gets real power is after the Ottoman invasion of Hungary. The Ottomans invade Hungary. Um, they put in a client called Janos Zapolia. Um, but Zapolia needs someone to hold his hand. And that's Alvizagriti, who becomes the kind of effective viceroy of the Sultan in Hungary. And he's all things to all men. To the Christians, he says, I'm fighting for Christianity and Christendom by keeping a Christian king in Hungary and not letting the um, Sultan uh, formally annex the country. And to the Sultan and the Ottoman apparatus, he says, I'm working for you. I'm a devoted slave of the Sultan. Uh, he's basically op operating in that extraordinarily uh, ambiguous and liminal land between um, different identities, different jurisdictions, uh, different loyalties, um, to the extent that no one really knows who he is loyal to, if it is not himself. Things go a little awry for Alvizagriti. He develops a lot of enemies in the Ottoman court, um, notably a pirate called Barbarossa who is brought in and hates the Venetians and doesn't see why the, the Ottomans should have close relations with the Venetians anyway. And also he's a victim of his own hubris and his own success. And so the, as, as things become more hostile, 
Alvise decides that he's going to turn his coat and he's going to go over to the Habsburgs. And so when he leaves Istanbul with his army and a massive treasure worth one and a quarter million ducats uh, in 1534, it is essentially never to return. He's going to go up to Transylvania and then he's going to ingratiate himself with the Habsburgs and he's going to try and get just as much power as he's ever had, if not more, but using um, the patronage of Ferdinand um, of the Habsburgs, the younger brother of Charles V, the Holy Roman Emperor. Unfortunately, he's made a lot of enemies in uh, Transylvania and the whole of Hungary during his time as viceroy there. And his arrival in Transylvania and certain actions that he carries out, some repressive, despotic, cruel actions that he carries out, means that there's a massive rebellion against him. And this leads to the siege at Medjash. And gradually his force of Gritiani, who are really united only by their love of lucre and their love of, of, um, of wealth that they think they will get through him, melt away. Um, he's left with a certain amount of his treasure. The people around all know that Gritty is is stuck in this in this citadel. Um, he's got a treasure, and also he has these extraordinary purple stockings, um, whose whose pockets sit, appear to be full, suggesting that they contain rather more than his legs. So the the whole region essentially converges on Medjesh, trying to get a bit of the action and trying to um, to kill Gritty, and eventually um, he ends up in this tent. It's clear that it's the end of the road for Gritty, but who's going to actually do the deed? He is still formally, at least, the representative of the Sultan, and so there's a carter there, a sly man who comes forward and he says um, he says to the Transylvanian leader. If you give me Gritty's stockings, then I'll do the deed. And so he cuts off Alvise's head with a sword and he takes the stockings and indeed they contain gems of a fathomless value. And so that's the end of Alvise Gritty. And the lesson for the Sultan is don't give a Christian so much power because ultimately you don't know where their loyalties lie. From then on, he will only accept converted Christians um, into positions of immense power in the apparatus. And so, um, and so that's the rather bloody end of Alvisa Gritti. And did his um, death leave a void, which was then filled by somebody else? Um, essentially what happens in 1535, 1536 is that Suleiman, whether he knows it or not, is consolidating his power. And he's getting rid um, of people or allowing to be got rid, people who uh, detracting from his power and authority. And Alvisa Gritti was one person. He went around the same place saying, I'm the, the Sultan's representative. And then he did things that the Sultan didn't approve of. He had all these relationships with, with Christian powers that the Sultan was very uneasy about. It's about cutting away all those challenges to his own authority. So Alvisa Gritti would never be replaced. And that was exactly how the Sultan ended up wanting it. And in the second part of the Sultan's reign, which I will go on to discuss in part two of this trilogy, he, we will find that the Sultan um, has a much surer grip on power, um, precisely because he doesn't allow people like Alvisa Gritti to rise and to gain so much influence and, and authority. Yeah, how interesting. Well, I think we should move on now to your second scene. Can you tell us where we're going, what's happening? So uh, the second scene is uh, we're in Baghdad. Sultan Suleiman is asleep in an appropriated palace. The Ottoman forces have just taken Baghdad 
and he is sleeping a well-deserved sleep because the campaign to take Baghdad has been such a complete dog's dinner. It's been an appalling campaign um, marked by rancor, misjudgment, um, massacres on the wrong side. Only with great difficulty have they actually managed to take Baghdad. The, the aim of the campaign is, and this is always the case with the Ottomans, is that you have to be looking in all directions at all times. You see that nowadays with modern Turkey. You see that um, modern Turkey has to have um, strategies in relation to all points of the compass. And this is certainly the case in the Ottoman time. So you have big interests in Hungary, big interests in Italy, North Africa, the entire axis where they meet the Habsburgs and where there's constant fighting and negotiation, fighting and negotiating. Uh, At the same time, you've got to keep an eye on your back door. And there are massive Ottoman interests down into Syria, ownership of the Holy Land, ownership of Islam's holiest places in, in Mecca and Medina. But the big threat is Iran. And why is Iran a threat? Iran is a threat not only because it's a different cultural entity, it's a different political entity, but also it's a different religious identity. And the religious identity of Iran is is solidifying as a Shia identity, just as the Ottoman identity is solidifying as a Sunni identity. And this is an extraordinary parallel between the bifurcation of of Christianity between the Reformed or Lutheran or Protestant side of the religion and the Catholic side. And a lot of quite similar dynamics are at work in in the Islamic world. Essentially what is happening is that the Iranians kind of make incursions um, through their proxies into eastern Anatolia, which the Ottoman Sultan properly regards as his own territory. They uh, send missionaries in to try and get people to adopt Shia practices. They try to get hold of resources. And and, and so the Sultan loses patience and he has to launch a campaign against, against them. His leader, his general, is Ibrahim Pasha. And Ibrahim Pasha goes ahead uh, and eventually the Sultan joins in with his army and they enter, um, they're, in northern, they're in northwestern Iran. Um, they've taken Tabriz, which is the Iranian capital at the time. But winter's closing in and the Iranian king, the, the Shah, they still haven't faced him in battle. So they go off in pursuit of the Shah and his, and his regime. There's, there's half an idea that they might even invade Iran and try and stay in Iran and, and, and convert them properly to, to Sunnism. But the Iranians are very clever. They're, they don't have anything like the Ottoman manpower. They don't have the technological prowess um, that the Ottomans have. But what they do have is winter. And so what they do is they melt away into the background as the weather gets colder and the Ottoman advance gets as far as Sultania, which is um, further further east um, from Tabriz. And in the shadow of, a, of an extraordinary Ilkhanid dome there, a dome that was built um, by the Mongol rulers um, at around the same time as Brunelleschi's dome in Florence and is as large and as impressive. Um, in the shadow of that dome, the snow falls and the snow falls and it doesn't stop falling. And by the time the storm has abated, Several thousand um, Iranian troops have died of exposure and of cold. And the only thing to do is to get out of Iran and head for Baghdad. That's easier said than done. You've got to cross the Zagros Mountains in winter. 
But um, that is what uh, Suleiman and Ibrahim um, decide the army needs to do. And as they do, they are harried by the fleet-footed Iranian ponies. And there's a constant fear of attack and stragglers are picked off and there are desertions and mini-mutinies. And by the time the um, the Zagros Mountains have been cleared, it's clear that this is a, a major public relations disaster. Um, not only have a lot of a lot of soldiers, Ottoman soldiers, died; they've been humiliated by um, Iran's far less impressive military um, uh, capabilities. News has got to Europe. They they love the idea of the Ottoman Sultan being humbled by the fleet-footed Iranian um, cavalry, and someone's got to be blamed. Well, Ibrahim doesn't want to be blamed. So Ibrahim talks to the Sultan and he comes up with a scapegoat. And this scapegoat is a man called Iskender Chelebi, who is the treasurer uh, and also the quartermaster. So he knows all about the money and he knows about supplying the troops. And although a lot of the decisions on this campaign were in fact Ibrahim's, Ibrahim manages to pin uh, responsibility for all the disasters on Iskender Chelebi. So gradually Iskender is uh, sidelined then he's divested of his functions. And then ultimately in Baghdad, after they've arrived in, in Baghdad and dusted themselves and taken stock of the disaster, Ibrahim is hanged uh, in the horse market of Baghdad. And that night, the Sultan is sleeping and Iskender appears and he wraps his turban around the Sultan's neck and he pulls and the Sultan is woken up by, his, by the sound of his own screams. We have this from various Turkish chroniclers who were contemporaries or near contemporaries. Um, so it is clearly a, a narrative that was um, disseminated by the Sultan himself. He had, this, he had the, the dream, the nightmare, where um, Iskender came to him and he strangled him. Why did he st strangle him? Because he had let Ibrahim turn um, the Sultan against him. He had let Ibrahim... Um, palm off responsibility for this disaster onto an innocent man. And at that moment, the Sultan takes a private vow that Ibrahim, his very close friend, his, his brother, his, probably his lover, um, all of those things rolled into one um, has gone too far and that he will not live out another year. And indeed, he doesn't live out another year. Um, because in Ramadan of 1536, um, Ibrahim is invited to the palace in Istanbul. He doesn't reappear. He is found dead, strangled um, by the deaf mutes of the palace, and his body is taken across the Golden Horn and buried in an unmarked grave. And there is no proclamation, there is no announcement. Ibrahim has disappeared. The message is clear. If, as Grand Vizier, you get too big for your boots, then this is how things will end up. So now he's got rid of three of his main advisors, supporters. So is this all part of the thing you were talking about where they're just not replaced? He just takes the power for himself? Uh, in the case of the Grand Vizier, that's a function that always needs to be filled. But after Ibrahim, it's, filled, it's not filled by the same man for such long periods. And... Um, there's a greater rotation of Grand Viziers. There are still powerful Grand Viziers and the Sultan's own son-in-law becomes a Grand Vizier with comparable powers to, um, to Ibrahim. But the idea of, of the Sultan's absolute supremacy in matters of policy 
Yeah, the office of the vizier um, remained, it had to be filled, but uh, it was filled by people who did not exceed the boundaries of their of of that office and and certainly by not by people who thought that they um actually could replicate or even exceed the powers of the sultan hi there it's peter here unseenhistories.com is now 3 months old and already it is packed full of enticing illuminating and excellently presented historical material if you give the site a visit today you'll see many beautifully illustrated excerpts of books that we've featured on Travels Through Time. There's excerpts from Malcolm Gaskell's Ruin of All Witches, Nigel Pickford's Samuel Pepys and the Strange Wrecking of the Gloucester, and Gary Shaw's Egyptian Mythology, along with many others as well. For those of you who like maps, you might want to check out the utterly compelling series of pieces on the Battle of Fredericksburg in 1862. That was a crucial moment in the American Civil War, along with a range of fabulously colourised images from Jordan Lloyd. It really is history for our times. UnseenHistories.com Okay, um, and can you take us, I think, let's go to your third scene now. I believe a letter has arrived. Um, so this, this scene follows on rather from the last scene because we're still in um, Baghdad. Suleiman is kind of uh, recovering from this um, experience of having suffered a bit of a humiliation uh, militarily, strategically, also having given the order for the execution of a man who he now thinks was probably innocent, having basically been taken for a ride. There's a lot of violence, there's a lot of um, kind of horror around the place. And then he gets a letter. And he gets a letter that takes him back into back into the life of the palace that he's left behind many, many months ago, and particularly back into the arms of his beloved. And his beloved is Hudem, uh, known in the West as Roxolana. Hudem is another of these extraordinary characters who literally come from nowhere and end up one of the most powerful figures in contemporary politics. I'll talk about the letter that he's reading, which essentially is full of expressions of love and adoration. There are strong hints of humour. There are the kind of in-jokes that you would expect um, between a couple that has been together for so long and, have ha- and has had many children and has shared many vicissitudes. And it ends with, with this gloriously sort of over-the-top but very playful sort of expression of love and devotion. As for this slave of yours who is burning in the fires of separation, whose liver is seared meat, whose chest is a battlefield, whose eyes are full of tears, who doesn't know day from light, who is drowning helplessly in an ocean of longing, who is afflicted by love for you worse than Farhad and Majnun, don't even ask about her. For each time I am separated from my sultan, I cry and sigh like a nightingale, and my condition is so pitiful that I wouldn't wish it on one of your infidel slaves." And this is the end of the the letter, and after it I write, and I think this is sort of this is true. A letter from Hurem brings the well-being of opium, the hilarity of wine, the warmth of a brazier on a cold day, and it really is this um, this lovely sense of the contrasting lives of a single person, that life of 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 strategy and death and decisions that haunt you for the rest of your life, and then this this wonderful likeness that comes from from Hurem. Now, Hurem 
is uh, one of the more remarkable figures of the, the 16th century. She was born in Ruthenia, what is now northern Ukraine. Uh, she was um, captured by slave traders, Tatar slave traders, who brought her to the Crimea, to the Crimean um, slave market. She was purchased there, put on a ship across the Black Sea. Uh, she ended up in the slave market in Istanbul, where she was purchased, very possibly by Ibrahim, for the royal harem. Now, not everyone who enters the royal harem gets very far. It's a very big establishment. It is regulated by very strict rules. Uh, it has an extremely strict hierarchy. And the Sultan already has consorts. He already has children from other women. There is no reason to suggest that Hurem will be chosen in order to consort with the Sultan. She might end up, if she's very lucky, marrying a very rich pasha and um, living a life of opulence in another way, or she might end up uh, in a range of other kind of um, eventualities of kind of differing degrees of, of luxury and, uh, and comfort. But she has something special and she is selected to pay the Sultan a nocturnal visit. So she's taken from the old palace, um, which is where the harem is, uh, to the new palace, probably in a, in a closed carriage or in a litter similarly closed, accompanied by eunuchs. And she's prepared um, so that she's, um, wonderful she's wonderfully smelling and she's, she's dressed in, in seductive clothes. She's brought to the door of the privy chamber. That leads to more nights in the privy chamber and it leads to a son. And that is usually game over for the imperial uh, concubine or consort. Because as soon as you have a male son, you are no longer welcome in the imperial bedchamber. And your job is to look after that male son and to raise him and to give him the best possible education in order that one day he will be a contender for the throne. And it's very clear that this will be a competitive tender uh, because there are all the other sons out there will also be going for the throne. Only one will get there and the others will inevitably die. So it's it's pregnant with threat and horror and amid the joy of giving birth and of having a, a healthy male um, child by the Sultan. But Hurem is a different kind of person. She, she doesn't accept that. And she has won a place in the Sultan's heart and so she returns. And that is in itself exceptional. And she returns so much that the Sultan ends up trialling something quite revolutionary, which is called fidelity. And the other um, consorts are not happy about this. Now, quite early on, the mother of the firstborn uh, male son of the Sultan, and we know this from a contemporary report, who is called Maidevran, who is probably, who is, who is thought to be prettier than Hurem, but Hurem has a certain charm that she doesn't have. Anyway, my Devran was, was, was kind and welcoming to Hurem when she arrived in the harem, but when she hears that Hurem is going every night to the Sultan's bedchamber and that he never tires of her, uh, my Devran doesn't like this. And so she gets together with Hurem and there is an altercation and my Devran ends up pulling tufts of hair out of, um, of Hurem's head and scratching and scoring her cheeks. And so next time the Sultan summons um, Hurem to be by his side, she sends her regrets and she says, I can't, I am sold meat. Um, and that's what Maidevran called her. She called her sold meat. 
Uh, I'm sold meat and my, and my face is all scored and I'm in no fit state to come into your auspicious presence. This only piques the Sultan's curiosity, which is clearly what Huram is designed, is trying to do. And so he insists that, he come, that she come before him. She comes in this disheveled, pitiful state and he says what happened and she tells him and he sends her away. And then he calls Mai Devran. And Mai Devran is not a politician. She's not a diplomat in the way that Hurem is. And she says, of course I did that to Hurem. And she deserved it. And she deserved worse. And every other consort of the Sultan in the harem must um, consider me their superior. And the Sultan doesn't like this. And he never sees Mai Devran again. And it only makes Hurem a stronger figure in the harem. And she ends up after that, um, after that, uh, campaign in Iran, marrying the Sultan and moving to the new palace. And that combination of marriage and living in the new palace with the Sultan is extremely innovative, extremely shocking. People don't like the influence that Hurem has over the Sultan. They think that um, the Janissaries in particular, um, the kind of Praetorian guard of the Ottoman Empire, mutter that she has bewitched the Sultan and that he's lost all reason because she has bewitched him. And in part two of this story um, that I will go on to tell, uh, Hurem becomes a very substantial figure in the political um, um, developments and most notably in this question, the succession, because the, the succession inevitably, as every um, reign progresses, the question of the succession becomes more and more important. But it was obviously just a very romantic story, wasn't it? And they fell deeply in love with each other and I imagine for him especially once he'd uh, lost hit these three important advisors it must have been an extremely lonely existence wasn't it having that amount of power and being able to have someone that you really trusted and that you loved to share it with was very important. That sense of loneliness is something that you you come across again and again um, in all systems of government where there's someone who's supposed to occupy some kind of pinnacle um, and, and be untouchable and unreachable. Um, and certainly Suleiman felt that at the beginning of his reign when he clung ever ever more closely to Ibrahim. And later on, he he compensated for the loss of Ibrahim and, and um, the loneliness he felt in other ways by remaining extremely close to Huram. And even just having someone to talk things through, you know, should I go and invade this this place now and that kind I, of thing? I I would imagine so. We don't we we obviously do, we don't know other than this a small number of letters that survive precisely the nature of of you know how they communicated to each other. But we can surmise because her quarters in the new palace, um, which were incredibly lavishly decked out, and she had ladies of her own personal harem who were who were her attendants who were with her. Her facilities were second to none. This section of the palace was bang next door to the Sultan's. They were divided literally by one gate so that they could actually go between the two or she could go and visit him without ever anyone really knowing. And that part of the, that inner part or the furthest part of the palace from the entrance is the most um, inaccessible part of the palace. And no official after Ibrahim was ever permitted to go in there other than a small number um, who had kind of domestic functions and a small number of eunuchs. And then uh, it, 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 was, it, it was a very private place. So it was a sort of domestic sphere. It was a, it was a domestic sphere, exactly. And did that carry on, that tradition? That w- did the, his successors have wives like that or did did it go back to the sort of harem model 
There was a period later on which Ottoman historians describe as the beginning of the decline, and that was when the consorts of the sultans became more powerful than the sultans. And there were and that a series. That was part of the decline. No that, was, that was that was the Ottoman historians said that's the reason for the decline, and it is true that there that the whole notion of the sultan being sent out or the the princes being sent out to learn their trade as provincial governors and then competing with each other that was undermined and increasingly sultans kept their sons very close to them and gave them um a, a childhood that essentially consisted of a gilded imprisonment and their mothers became more important and more powerful and there was a kind of period where sultanic authority was kind of undermined and even sultans themselves I'm thinking more of the 17th century, very rarely emerged from from the palace themselves. And so the functions of the empire were passed on to hereditary families of bureaucrats. And then there was this um, sometimes very powerful figure of the queen mother or the consort of the sultan who was also powerful. And so um, this also coincided with a kind of um, the, the, the rise of European power and so the conclusion that these traditionalist historians drew was that this was because of this, the, the excessive power enjoyed by the women in the harem <laughs> and the, yeah. the associated effeminacy of the sultans. Right. Yeah, that sounds, sounds familiar. I think we've, <laughs> we've heard that before. <laughs> so I think now we just have one, one more question that I need to ask you, which is uh, if you could have picked something up from one of these moments or from this year and brought it back with you to the present, uh, what would it be? Well, I'm going to go for something that exists in this year, but it's slightly been put in a cupboard. Uh, it goes back just a few years earlier, it's kind of disclosure. And the, the context for this is the, is the coronation of Charles V, um, the Habsburg Holy Roman Emperor, um, Suleiman's great rival um, in Bologna by the Pope, the dissemination through woodcuts and the printing press of images of these two parading around Bologna wearing their crowns. Um, the papal uh, three-tiered tiara and then the mitre crown um, surmounted by a cross of the Holy Roman Emperor. And this was considered a great PR coup for Charles V. It showed, um, it showed his aspirations to a world empire um, and the crown was seen as a kind of symbol of his power and dominion. And essentially what Ibrahim Pasha, who was the kind of uh, choreographer of this part of, um, of Suleiman's reign, said, well, we've got to have one of those. And we've got to make it bigger and better. And uh, he was very close to the Venetians. He'd been born a Venetian citizen. And um, Alviza Griti was, um, had a finger in this particular pie as well. Essentially what happened was a consortium of Venetian jewellers were commissioned to create a crown. And this crown, we have descriptions of it, very detailed descriptions. The diarist Marina Sanud, a Venetian diarist, visited it saw it after it had just been finished. Um, it was in Venice before it made it, it, just, it wended its um, rather serpentine way to, towards the Ottoman Empire, where the Sultan, who was in, in any case heading north for a campaign, took, took reception of it. It cost, it was valued at 144,000 ducats. And just to put that into context, 
Andrea Doria, the uh, Genoese admiral, was at the same time building an entire new fleet that was um, the budget for which was 150,000 ducats. So an entire new fleet and one single crown cost basically the same. Uh, it was saturated in jewels and gems and incredible stones. It had four tiers rather than the papal three. It was obviously never designed to be worn. No, no neck, let alone the sultan's swan-like neck, could ever sustain it. So it was carried on a, it was carried on a cushion. And it was unveiled during his progress north in 1532. Uh, and we have very good descriptions of it um, in Nish, which is a town in Serbia. And the, the, the townspeople gathered and they watched the entire Ottoman army march past. And the climax to this was this beautiful page boy holding a cushion with this extraordinary object, which can only have looked like a kind of golden um, sugar cone embedded with um, assorted um, glazed fruit. Until you look closer and you see, no, it's actually <laughs> solid gold. And this is all gemstones. And do we have any idea what happened to it? Uh, there was a certain amount of embarrassment, I think, after that, because some of the doctors of the law said, well, listen, um, this is all very well, um, but it all sounds a bit Western and a bit Christian. And Iskender Celebi, the treasurer, said treasurer was muttering about 144,000 ducats on a crown that could be spent um, on mounting a campaign or building a fleet. It didn't seem like money very well spent. And it was associated with Alviza Gritti, who then came to a sticky end. It was associated with Ibrahim Pasha, who then came to a sticky end. So after a few outings, it was actually put in a cupboard and um, eventually it, it was dismantled. And I don't know of any certified component of that crown um, existing or, or, or known to exist today. That's a cool thought, though, that maybe the crown jewels of current heads of state perhaps contain the odd diamond or <laughs> precisely no because there was a lot of recycling as you as you're as you're hinting so what I'd like with your permission is to take that crown and um, I wouldn't wear it either I'd probably just sell it and then enjoy the money <laughs> good, good good I like your honesty I applaud your honesty there you wouldn't want to have it you know on your table I wonder who would buy it. That would be interesting. Elon Musk or uh, Jeff Bezos? I don't know. Thank you so much. It's been a really, really fascinating discussion um, today. And I urge people to buy The Lion House and find out more about Suleiman the Magnificent. And uh, yes, I'm looking forward to the second instalment whenever that's going to be forthcoming. Thank you, Christopher. Brilliant. Thank you so much. That was me, Violet Moller talking to Christopher de Belague the other day. His riveting book, The Lion House, The Coming of a King, has just been published. For more information and to see some splendid images, please visit our website, tttpodcast.com, where you can also subscribe to our newsletter. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Until next time, goodbye. <laughs>